I don't know if it's just me or not, but the last few years, it seems that our world has changed somewhat. More violent, more hate-filled, more depression, more anxiety, social unrest, political conflict, and of course, our huge worldwide pandemic. Things have not turned out like many of us ever expected. And some days, our hearts are heavy when we think about these things. And that's pretty much the same situation that Habakkuk found himself in some 2,600 years ago. Life was not going well for him. Now, we really know very little about the prophet Habakkuk. We think that he was a temple prophet in the closing days of the kingdom of Judah. And many interpreters believe that he was a contemporary of Jeremiah and that his prophecy came from the rule of King Hezekiah. These were difficult days for Judah. Decaying morally and spiritually from the inside, Judah was being threatened with conquest by Babylon from the outside. Habakkuk was living in a very violent world with dissension, division, and destruction at every turn. Like us, he felt broken and burdened by this situation. In the beginning of the book of Habakkuk, it says that the prophet saw a vision of an oracle. Now, in Hebrew, the word oracle means something heavy that you have to carry. Habakkuk carried this heavy burden of all the turmoil going on around him in his heart. In one of my very first theology classes in seminary, on the very first day, the professor came in and said we really needed to pay attention in his class because of all the things that we were going to be talking about in the semester, he said you need good theology. When the life of a child in your church gets suddenly taken in an accident, when one of your most important leaders is diagnosed with terminal cancer, when the marriage of your best friend starts to crumble, and when you find yourself disappointed and concerned with how things are going, you need to know what to do. Theodicy is what he called it. It's that theological dilemma that we all have to confront sooner or later when things aren't quite working out like we thought they should if a good and loving God is in control. That was Habakkuk's burden, and he did not hesitate to throw it back into God's face. Now, this is the part of biblical spirituality that I personally find appealing. You see, we can be brutally honest with God. There is no particular virtue um, that, you know, we just have to grin and bear it and say, thank you very much. That is not the proper liturgical response to trouble or tragedy. God expects and even encourages his kids to talk back. And so Habakkuk did. Habakkuk had a bone to pick with God. Things were not quite going the way he thought they should. God wasn't running the universe to suit Habakkuk. And so he told God about it in no uncertain terms. 
Habakkuk told God about all that was going wrong. He told him about the meanness and the violence and the strife and the contention that he seemed to witness every single day. And then there was that matter of laws just being ignored, justice never seeming to win, and the wicked seemingly to take over, and judgments that just seemed plain wrong. Habakkuk did not like what he saw going on around him, but he was even more troubled by God's seemingly indifference about it. How long do I have to cry out for help and you don't even listen, God? Habakkuk demanded to know, why is it, God, when I cry out about all this awful situation, you don't do anything to change it? During Habakkuk's review of the problems of his day, he stubbed his toe on one of the most nagging spiritual dilemmas that we all have to face. Why doesn't God do something? Philip Yancey has called this experience disappointment with God. He says that it consists of three questions that nobody ever asks out loud. Is God unfair? Is God silent? Is God hidden? Now, what makes this book of Habakkuk so compelling is that he really does ask all three of these questions. And in doing so, he provides permission for us to do the same. God is not some fragile, wilting flower that must be carefully protected. We have a big God. When God pushes, God really does expect us to push back, and Habakkuk did just that. And when he had finished having his little temper tantrum, Habakkuk sat down and resolved to wait for God to answer. The image used in our text this morning is that of a watchman at his post. Now, this was a very common symbol in scripture, and in ancient Israel, Every city and field had a watchman to keep vigil during the long, dark night. It was their job to watch, to wait, and to warn. And so, after charging God with inattention and inactivity, Habakkuk adopted the stance of a watchman to await God's reply. Waiting patiently in expectation is a foundation of spiritual life. Because waiting patiently is an exercise of faith and an expression of trust. Habakkuk was content to sit down and wait after voicing his complaint to God because he knew God really was there and God would not be silent forever and he knew God would eventually respond. And when God finally did answer, God told him to write the vision down. Make it plain, put it on a tablet so that even a runner may see it. Now, if you have ever watched the Tour de France bicycle race, you have noticed that there are messages all along the route that people have painted for the cyclists to see. And they are printed on the asphalt and in big, huge signs and bright colors so that the riders streaming by could read them quickly and clearly. And that seems to be the same sort of instructions that God gave Habakkuk with the vision. Write it out clearly enough so that somebody passing by can read it quickly. 
God told him that his word was certain, but his word may not be instant. So God told Habakkuk to write it down because there needed to be a record of it, something that they could refer to later. God would do as God had promised to do, but only in God's good time. If it seems to take a while, God told Habakkuk, wait for it. It will surely come, even if it doesn't feel like it, even if it doesn't look like it. God will always do what he says. And it's always God's time, God's plan, and God's way. So that puts us squarely back on faith's ground. The second half of Habakkuk says that the righteous shall live by faith. This would eventually become the centerpiece of Paul's understanding of the gospel of the New Testament. And he cited this verse no less than four times in all of his letters. And he used it always as the bottom line in his argument about how we are saved, that it happens by faith. Paul argued, and echoing Habakkuk, Each of us, each of us has to decide whether or not we are prepared to trust an unseen God at his unfulfilled word. Are you ready to do that? You see, Habakkuk's vision spoke of the end, and we are just not there yet. God is not finished with us, and God is not finished with faith community. So it would be a huge mistake for us to stop at the present moment and conclude that our best days are behind us. Along with Habakkuk, we live in the tension between what is promised and what is yet to come. That is why we pray every Sunday morning around here, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, Those words only make sense if God's promises are still unfolding. And if God's promises are still unfolding, then we have to live by faith, trusting in God's future that is yet to come. There is a beautiful confession of this kind of faith that was found scrawled on the wall of a German concentration camp during World War II. I had a copy of this in my office for many, many years. I believe in the sun, even if it does not shine. I believe in love, even if I do not feel it. I believe in God, even if he is silent. At the end of the book of Habakkuk, the prophet gave voice to that very same kind of faith. Though the fig tree does not blossom and no fruit on its vines, though the produce of the olive fails and the fields yield no food, though the flock is cut off from the fall and there is no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will exalt in the God of my salvation. So God's people must live by faith. But really, what is faith? And how do we get enough of it to get us through difficult times? Here's a poem I want to share with you by David White. It's called Faith. I want to write about faith, about the way the moon rises over the cold snow, night after night, faithful, even as it fades from fullness, 
slowly becoming that last curving and impossible sliver of light before the final darkness. But I have no faith. I refuse it the smallest entry. Let this space then be my small poem, like a new moon slender and barely open, to be the first prayer that opens me to faith. Now that's quite an image. Faith like the moon. And why not? Because faith shines in darkness, and faith is light but not its own light, and faith must keep rising even in the cold, even as it faces and fades down to just a little sliver before it goes dark for a night. And the poet says, I want to speak about faith. Let this small poem be the first prayer that opens me to faith. Like Habakkuk, we struggle some days to have faith, but we're not alone in that struggle. The disciples of Jesus once came to him and said, increase our faith, Jesus. Our faith is just too little. It's just too little. Increase our faith. Now, you would think they would not have to ask for that since they had been with Jesus for so long. How many miracles they must have seen with their own eyes that he performed. Let's get a little background on this moment. Jesus had just come down from the mountain with Peter, James, and John, where he was transformed and taken up into the clouds, and there they saw him talking to Moses and Elijah, and then they heard from the clouds, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Even after this incredible moment, the disciples could not heal a little boy from his illness, because of their unbelief, the littleness of their faith, as Jesus said. It happens to us too, doesn't it? We see God working in amazing, miraculous ways, and then when it's time for us to step out and just trust him, we seem to have such little faith. They had lived in his presence, can you imagine living for months and months in the actual presence of Jesus and your own faith not blooming, not flourishing? But it doesn't happen. Not for them. Even in his company, they had almost no faith. And so they came to him one day, frustrated, embarrassed, aching, and they said, Jesus, increase our faith. And his answer to them is just baffling. If you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey. Now, do you find that to be a very helpful reply? Personally, I don't find that very helpful at all. A tree, a tree uprooted and flying into the sea where it plants itself in the ocean. What is that? It's kind of a spectacle, kind of mind over matter. It's kind of absurd sounding, not to mention just pointless. And it looks a lot like TV magic to me. He doesn't seem to actually be taking the request of his friends very seriously, does he? As a matter of fact, I suspect, I could be wrong, that when he said those words, there was a little grin on his face, a little twinkle in his eye, they had come to him saying, increase our faith. 
It's such a little faith. Increase our little faith. And he actually says, hey, guys, a little faith will do. You have the tiniest bit of faith, mustard seed, tiny, hardly bigger than a pinhead, a little dab of faith, and the trees will jump for you. Well, since we really don't need trees uprooting themselves and flying through the air, he seems to be saying how much a little faith can accomplish. So what is faith? Well, it is certainly not certainty. It is not invincible optimism. It's not the opinion of wanting something so bad that you are surely going to get it. Faith is not, as the Queen of Hearts said to Alice, believing in six impossible things before breakfast. What is faith? There are many ways to define it, but this way of thinking about it helps me. Faith is a way of looking at conditions as they are or as they seem to be and hoping, trusting, believing that there is vastly more there than our eyes can see. Looking at your world, looking at yourself and saying, what I see cannot possibly be all. It is being open to that open to the prospect that God is real and God is present and God is this vast, infinite love who can come and change everything more, more than we ever imagined, that God can truly work all things together for good. And for some of us, that faith is not easy. And by the way, there's nowhere in Scripture where it says faith is easy. For some, it is easier than others. Some people seem to have what Paul actually calls the spiritual gift of faith. But I would think for most of us, we have to struggle. And it is a struggle sometimes, especially when we only see the tip of the iceberg. The thing is, the wonderful thing is, is that Jesus knows. And he says it's all right. It's all right, just a little faith, just a little seed of faith will do. Why? Because what faith is mostly is an opening, an opening to God. And however small that opening is, the light of God, the love of God, and the power of God can enter that and fill that and open that more and more and more over time just a little opening of the heart. Ask for that much, give that much, lean into that much, and the good Christ will enter in that much, and his presence always means the increasing of our faith. One of the best definitions of faith that I have heard is this, giving all of yourself that you can to all of the God that you know, and that's enough and that will always become more. Do you think it was easy for Jesus to have faith? We will really never know all of his mind, of course, but we are given this picture of him on his darkest night under the trees, under the olive trees, under the moon. He lies flung onto the ground. His friends have betrayed him. Everyone has betrayed him. And he is abandoned, and the cruelest death is on the way for him. 
And there he is in anguish, asking God to spare him for what he has known for a long time was his to do. He would uproot that tree of death if for that moment he could. He wants out now. In that moment, how much faith does it look like Jesus has? Enough to say, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. That little mustard seed, that little sliver, opening to God, of not my will, but yours. And the tree that he could not move but embraced by faith, God has pulled up by its roots and lifted it up into the light for all of us. Not death anymore, but life. Nevertheless, is all the faith you need. And sometimes a discouraged and exhausted soul will simply say into the darkness, Dear Lord, increase my faith. And that is the greatest prayer of faith. And that is the prayer that changes everything. Let us pray, my friends. Gracious God, thank you for your everlasting faithfulness to us. Help us to trust you, not only in our light, but in our darkness. Thank you for guiding our future just as you have guided our past. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our closing